0: mean old lion media and Sunseeker tv in association with carl anthony payne entertainment present black arm of the
2: law all right all right ladies and gentlemen welcome black black like i never left black as ever black af black again once again i am your host carl payne welcome to another wonderful episode of the black arm of the law today's guest has 27 plus years under her belt with the fbi her resume reads like the who's who and the where the where. She's been all around the world and aye, i aye, aye. In October 2014, appointed executive director RTPC, international and internationally-based renowned export corporation. And in January 2016, she was appointed vice president directs the advancement of global business de- development, infrastructure, and liaison throughout the USA, Spain, Mauritania, West Africa, Morocco, Europe, and Switzerland. And Mauritania is where she currently resides. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to today's episode, Ms. Gwendolyn Hubbard. Good evening, Gwendolyn. How are you?
3: I am doing very well, Mr. Payne. How are you?
2: Blessed, blessed and highly flavored. I mean favored. Yes, yes,
3: yes. I love that. (laughs) Yes, sir.
2: All right, what part of the the country are you in right now?
3: I am right now sitting in Mauritania, West Africa, and it is directly across from New York City, and it's beside Morocco. Uh, It borders Morocco, Senegal, Spain, Algeria. Uh, And I've been over here now seven years uh, since my retirement from the FBI. Uh,
2: Are you serious? What time is it over there?
3: It's 11 p.m.
2: Okay. I I was like, she's got to be joking, right? No. Okay. So you're serious.
3: Yeah. I'm sorry.
2: Okay, well, hey, let's let's jump right into that. What made you decide to uh, relocate over there?
3: Well, honestly, um, I'm a PK's daughter, so my past I'm a pastor's kid, PK, and I was with the FBI for 27 years. served so the FBI doing numerous uh, roles. I joined uh, rather young and had an excellent FBI career, and I. I reached the level of senior executive service, SES, where I was head of human capital, recruitment, hiring, training, workforce development, employee relations, etc. So I was always, I'm always the type of person that likes to look beyond where my level was. And at that time, I'm like, hmm, well, I don't think they'll make me FBI director. Where do you want me to go now, Lord? And I prayed. And uh, Carl Payne, I prayed and I kept hearing Lord tell me, it's time for you to go to Africa and open a school. I want you to go to Africa and open a school. And I said, Lord, I am your simple, stupid child. I said, I need you to send me fruit. And time after time after time that I prayed, he sent fruit. And after three years of going through that, I finally heeded the call and walked out on faith and moved to Mauritania, West Africa. My husband I met in America uh, is from Mauritania. And uh, so the transition was very uh, different. I can say that, but it was very, very challenging.
2: Challenging, which is, I love a challenge that's awesome yes sir um, I visited um, South Africa one time I was in um, Johannesburg okay. Yeah, I did a movie down in Johannesburg and that was it. Yeah, that was quite an experience. And of course, it left me wanting more. And I was like, I got to yeah. see all all parts of Africa. So
3: it is so great, Carl. I'm telling you, this has been just a godsend. I mean, Mauritania literally saved my life because I was so, such a hardcore FBI trained uh, individual and senior executive. And I worked very closely with uh, Director Mueller, Robert Mueller during his tenure. Mm. at the best recruitment years of minority Ever. I mean, we were Mm -hmm. everywhere, and same with onboarded Director Comey, and uh, was with him for about a year before I departed. And came over here, and I came over here and started a school, so I do have an English academy, as well as I do international oil, gas, and mining. Uh, I also sell gold and diamonds, as well as meteorite. Believe it or not, there's a big world out there for meteorite collectors, and a lot of meteorites from space fall in the sub-Saharan desert where we are.
1: shut the front door
3: yes i never forget hearing the lord tell me i kept hearing when i came here the first shall be last and the last shall be first mauritania guess what they are they're the last country to abolish slavery. They've only been free from slavery sixty years, Carl.
2: Wow. It's always it's always staggering and, and you know, mind boggling when I hear stuff like that, you know. But at the same token, I tell people all the time, you know, it, it ain't been that long. I tell people, like, like people act like it's, I'm like, you know, yeah. people wonder why and people get all up in arms about all the stuff that's going on. And I'm like, well, you have to understand the old guard is still in charge. <laughs> Number one, uh, you know, they haven't all died off. Number two, I'm like, it was just not that long ago yes. that, yeah. you know. I mean, just because just because things have happened really quickly in a decade with regards to, you know, advances or, you know, people making money and those kind of things, that doesn't change other people's mindsets. It doesn't change what is. And, and you know, and I, I remember my time in South Africa. I remember, you know, as well. Uh, Realizing while I was there the same thing that apartheid had not been long over, you know, and and people's mindsets like people are, you know, know, have been, for lack of a better word, I don't want to say brainwashed, but it's a mindset that sets in. It's a mindset that sets in. And, uh, and to be fair. It, it can happen to anyone in any walk of life. As you were saying, you were you were such a strict, you know, you had a, a certain mindset, too, when you went there. And just from working in the capacity that you had been working in for years, I'm pretty sure that you had been, uh, you know, well-bred and trained. And, and, and just your mindset, the way you looked at things, the way you perceived things, the way you received things, the way you analyzed things, it, it all was probably needed to be reprogrammed. That's or
3: it surely did. Everything that you know, when you look on the State Department website about Mauritania, it tells you it's dangerous, it breeds terrorists, it does this. I have felt the most safe in this country and one day in DC. And it's so peaceful. The threat, mm-hmm. the threat, Carl, is at the Mauritanian border with Mali, which is like the distance from uh, Washington D.C. to Los Angeles. That's mm-hmm. what the threat is, but not Mauritania. New City is all the way at the border of Mali, which is far, far away. And you're right; it is a gotcha. mindset. It's a mindset, and that's what has to happen. Is and that's what some of the things I've been doing here is retraining those. For example. My personal assistant, those who actually uh, come and you know cook and clean and things like that, I don't call them the help or the maid. I call them my personal assistant, and make mm-hmm. sure that they have their own room, they have a TV, they have you know their own personal space. And when I first came here, she was shocked that I gave her that and I'm like, Yeah. And she and so she told her friends and her friends started asking their bosses, well, can I have a TV? Can I have my own room? So it's yeah. been a paradigm shift to even at that level, it's a mindset. I said, no baby. I said and when she we would eat, I said, no, you'll come and eat with us. She was like, no, no, I just have to serve. I said, no. I said, you come and eat with my husband. Lad. Come on. And she, right. it took a while. And one time I saw her lying on the floor and this was an opening thing for me. She was lying on the floor, and I'm like, baby, get up off the floor. Oh my gosh, why are you lying on the floor? Well, everything over here is made of tile, ceramic so tile. And guess where is the coolest place when it's hot in the desert?
1: Right, and on that, right, right.
3: And I personally experienced it one time because the electricity went off and it was like 105 degrees. And I too had to get in my bathing suit and I laid on, that, on the tile and it was so cool. <laughs> and I said, wow, now I understand. <laughs>
2: Now I understand why they had their butts on the ground.
3: Exactly. Yes, sir. <laughs> let
2: me, let me answer your question. And I'm not sure what policy it is, what the policy is, but, you know, obviously you having served for so long in the uh, FBI, now that you're there, does that allow you, you know, while, while you're training and, and the things that you're doing, are you allowed to still carry your weapon over there? Or what's that situation like? Yeah,
3: you can have a license. You can carry a weapon here. I'm no longer with the FBI. So you can carry a weapon. and can get a license for it here. But there's not a lot. A lot of people have large shotguns because they keep a lot of their money uh, at home in safes. Uh, mm-hmm. But I have been very blessed and haven't experienced any negative instances here.
1: Right.
3: And in the area that I live in. now, in the poor areas, there's a lot of work to be done. In the poor areas, the vulnerable communities, every country city has a poor area. Look at our Los Angeles. Look at uh, what is this, Kid Row, you know? Yeah, but even the poorest, poorest area here, in my opinion, is still better than one day on Skid Row. To be honest with you, they live in tents. Carl, the those that are in vulnerable communities, live in tents, and they have their toiletry. Uh, even if the the poor live in a in a house that has four walls their toilet system is the hole in the ground. Now, that mm. was eye-opening to me. To me, I don't know if you experienced it when you went to South Africa.
2: Um, no, but I heard.
3: Yes. So that, um, one of the other things that I'm doing, I'm also the Executive Director of Doctors Builders International, which is a non-profit 501c3, BBI International. And so that's one of the areas we're focusing on is affordable housing, clean drinking water. If we can give a community clean drinking water, they can Start growing things that can turn into a business, and our focus is to create those products that will give them sustainable lives. That's going to improve their lives, not just going and feed giving food. No, that's a that's putting a band aid on it. We want to show you how to right. grow the food, sell it. Eat it, sell it to more, and pass it down to your family.
2: Yeah, teach them a skill and a trade, exactly. and then they can eat for life. There
3: you go. Exactly.
2: Yep, yep, yep. All right, let's get back to the U.S. Where'd you grow up?
3: Lynchburg, Virginia. Uh,
2: Lynchburg, Virginia.
3: Yes, Lynchburg, Virginia. I come from a family of 10, seven brothers, and three sisters. Ooh. <laughs> yes, sir. Ooh,
2: well. <laughs> yes. Somebody needed a hobby. <laughs> early. <laughs> but it was great. So, so what made you, um, what made you want to the FBI or law enforcement? How did that, how did that, you know, what sparked it?
3: Sure. Believe it or not, it was my father. My father saw an advertisement that the FBI was hiring while I was in school. And he says, Gwen, uh, go over and take this test. And I was like, FBI? Okay. And uh so that would be cool. And so took their test, passed it, and it was really the most exciting career that I've ever been. I loved the FBI during my tenure. You know, the Lord brought me in at a young age and I aspired really quickly up the chain and rose the chain through, through the different levels of supervisory positions. And focused majority of my career on diversifying the FBI and unveiling the secret. I said to myself, that's one thing that the Lord sent me here is to exposed the FBI to the minority communities so that people like us would want to apply. And how did we do that? Guess what? We went into churches, synagogues, mosques, uh, you name it, we were there. Yes, I actually went into mosques where the imam would put me up on the platform to talk about the FBI. And afterwards, those individuals, same individuals, would bring their daughters to us saying, please hire my granddaughter, please hire my niece, please hire my nephew. And I remember this at a Sikh Community uh, shortly after 9 11, and I spoke. And afterwards, it was just a line of people wanting to apply only because I felt it in my heart, Carl, that we were doing the right the right reasons. And I always fought for the underdog, even in the FBI, within our employees. If someone was being mistreated, they know they could come to Gwendolyn Hubbard and she was going to help make that pathway straight and that's something that I, I was instinctively taught from childhood so I didn't know any other way to be
2: but correct I think I think we all were were taught and read you know during a certain time right you know come from a certain generation let's just say a certain time frame <laughs> Exactly I think cuz uh, cuz these new these new ones boy I tell you I don't understand Got it. but I think we were all, you know, brought up the same way and to have that kind of compassion, you know, and, and I think it also comes from a spiritual place, as you've already mentioned, you know what I mean? Exactly. Um, and I, and, and I was going to ask you, obviously, is that what led you to also be involved in service work, not just being of service, but service work. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. But sometimes I think, you know, it, it can be a hindrance, right? If we don't have discernment, mm-hmm. if we don't, practice discernment in in that way. So I feel like, you know, this is a nice segue, if I I may say so. What kind of discernment, or tell me a little bit about the uh, recruitment practices of the FBI?
3: So I was over the recruitment process. So FBI agents had to pass a written exam, and they also had to pass a phase two role play so they were interviewed by 383 veteran agents. And uh, then they had to do polygraph tests and then a full scale, high level security, top clearance, security clearance to pass the background. So they would at credit, talk to your neighbors and all of that. Now you talk about discernment. Let me tell you something. So I heard the Lord tell me, Paul, when I had made it to a GS-15 level and so fast. I said, Lord, why do I have to take this job? At that time, I was actually working for the FBI and working for a law firm. And I to take this GS-15. I said, that's going to mess up my law firm gig because they paid really, really well. And my boss kind of looked at me. He asked me to be acting, and I said, I said, Mark, how long do I have to do this? Because you're going to mess up my law firm gig. And he looked at me like, Girl, do you know what I'm trying to set you up for and give you an opportunity for? And I was like, Do you know I'm already making that type of money <laughs> without the headache? <laughs> so I took the acting, oh, you 15 position. And uh, I remember I was young and I remember riding with my mother from Lynchburg, going back to DC. And I said, Mom, Director Mueller has asked me to bring in, increase the number of minorities in the FBI, particularly blacks, Hispanics, Arab, et cetera. And I said, I said, how do I get into the black community? We were just talking and all of a sudden it was this, God did this. Thing. That's why I put you there. I put you there because the badge and the gun is not going to be the effective way to fight the demonic forces of the world. It's going to take God fearing people. I get t- tingles every time I tell this story. And I said, Oh my God. My mother said, What's wrong with you? I said, Mom, that's why God put me there so fast. I have to bring in God fearing people. It's not the badge and the gun. And guess what, Carl? There were many, many agents who came to me and told me, You are God. I know God spoke that to you. One is Frank Burton. He's a, he was a pastor. And he said, Gwen, let me tell you something, Gwendolyn. He said, Let me tell you how I know God is true. He said, My special agent in charge, he was in Philadelphia. He said, "My SAC called me out of the bed like at three in the morning." And said Frank, "I got one down here, but only you can deal with these types of people." Frank walks in, and the girl was basically attacking everybody that was coming in to try to interview her. She was a gang banger, dark glasses. Oh, you mf this, you da, da 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 da. And her mother was there, and and so when Apostle Frank got there, who's now he's now Apostle, but Frank Bird got there, he said, "Take those sunglasses off," and she's like, "I'm not doing nothing." You da 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 da. da. And the mother said, "I have to stay in here, or she will attack." And Frank says, ma'am, I got this. Leave. Mama, you can leave. Trust me. You can leave your daughters in safe hands. She left. And Frank says, take those glasses off. And again, she's cursing and fussing and banging. He said it a third time and leaned in, take your glasses off. And this time she took them off. Frank leaned in and said, do you know that you are a child of God and God loves you? And there is nothing that you have done that God will not forgive you. He started ministering to her that baby started crying. And do you know he told me he said, Gwen, for six years, she wouldn't talk to anybody but me and was able to help them solve at least twenty murders that night. It was unbelievable. Unbelievable. And I've heard stories after stories after stories of other FBI agents who it wasn't the badge, it wasn't the gun. Guess what? It was them ministering, ministering. So that's how I know that 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 God what God told me was right he said I put you there for you to hire God-fearing agents in the FBI because the gun and the badge cannot do it by itself and well
2: I think that, that definitely speaks to purpose you know so a lot of people don't understand that they have purpose walking in their purpose so that's a good thing when you figure out what that is and then you you walk and you live in that so that's amen to that Amen to that.
3: And I also said, Carl, I said, you know what, Lord, I said, you put me, you put me in, I, yeah, you sent me there. And when it's time for me to go, you will tell me when it's time for me to go. And that's exactly what he did. You said divine calling. Now you will get me preaching on your show.
2: <laughs> Listen, it's all good. It's all good. We can have we can have church up in here anytime.
1: Amen, Carl. Amen.
2: You know, there's no, it's always the right time for church. You feel
1: me? Man, I feel it. Yes, sir.
2: (laughs) So tell us a little bit about some of the programs that you have uh, helped to create within the FBI for people of color.
3: Okay, sure. For example, there was a program uh, we were having difficulty with particularly blacks passing phase one tests. Okay.
2: Right. And that's what, that's what I was going to say. Like, like, and that's what I was asking about. You know, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I was saying that's what I really wanted to get into. Like, what are some of the um, experiences uh, with discrimination yeah. within that process? You know, I mean, they can say that all day long to fill some sort of quota. But at the same time, when I say like sometimes, you know, some of the, you know, the changing of the guard is still there. And and, you know, a lot of the times there's a glass ceiling. So and, and sometimes that ceiling starts really low.
3: Yes. And we did So
2: tell me a little tell me about that.
3: So uh, the entire selection process I was involved in and the phase one test what we recognized it did have adverse impact on African Americans. And at that time we also brought in industrial psychiatrists and we worked with our EO officer at that time, I remember it was Jennifer Love, and we wanted to delve into why they were not passing phase one. Test. Because if you didn't pass that phase one written exam, you couldn't go any further with the FBI, unlike some of the other agencies.
2: Uh, so what was the issue?
3: The issue with that phase one, believe it or not, is that it was prone. It was good for African-Americans who had certain fields like engineering, mathematics, st- statisticians, etc. I think it's the way those questions were being asked. If you ask me, what would you do if you walked into a 7-Eleven store and a man had a gun in the store? and you were in New York, your answer would be different than someone in, say, Lynchburg, Virginia. And sometimes people were trying to take that test as if they were already in the FBI, trying to answer those questions like they were an FBI agent. So it was about, bi- we were, we recognized it was a biased test and we changed it. That was one of the things that we did, okay? And, mm-hmm. and also there was, I had, we had 56 field offices who all reported into, into my department across the country. And so those, what we call applicants, squads would we had FBI recruiters and other staff that helped them process paperwork and everything staffing assistance right and so we I gave them the challenge of we want you to go to every HBCU in your territory and I set up an intern program that was the HBCU intern program where we would recruit everyone was required to submit nominate at least five to 10 applicants from an HBCU, okay? And they would come into headquarters with their nominations. We would select those from interns. And we did the same with Hispanic Association of Universities, the tribal colleges and universities. The same with the Arab Student Association at different campuses and I'll never forget this one year and I was working with Mark Bullock who was the assistant director at the time and I, I went to him, I said, boss I said, what you're going to find uh, when you walk downstairs to this intern class, I said, I'm not sure so sure that certain people are going to be happy. He said, what you mean? I said, it's a sea of diverse diverse faces and how did that happen? Well, We went on to college campuses and for the entire semester we would actually hire Not hire, but give the students who are working in marketing or business, give them a curriculum to recruit FBI agents on campus and off campus recruitment activities, gave them a chance to set up and lead those recruitment programs in their region. And so when you have recruiters who are predominantly older white men, it's a challenge for them to be able to know where to go to recruit minorities. It's a challenge. They don't know really where to go. So I said, I had a, remember having a big conference one day and, uh, it was all the recruiters that had come in I don't know maybe three, 400 of them and I asked them during this conference I'm jumping around a little bit but I have to tell you this because this is where it started mm-hmm. there was a gentleman named in the world, he called me up one day out of the blue he said "Miss Hubbard I understand if you have a challenge recruiting African-Americans as agents in the FBI I said yes we do he said what if I could tell you I have a program that would increase that program and bring you from being ranked number 136 to being ranked number one I'd say I need, I need you to be in Washington D.C. today, and he laughed. You know, he told me what he the program that he had is to take the FBI into an advertising or marketing related class on an HBCU for the entire semester. They would develop the curriculum and become like the FBI's ad agency HBC. on campus, and they would recruit implement on campus and off campus recruitment campaigns. That of course would approve. Mm-hmm. And we went from testing it in three HBCUs to expanding it to 56. Mm. And we went from being ranked in right behind my, you can see kind of those three uh, words on my wall behind me. Yes. We went from being ranked number 136 employer of choice, ranked by African Americans, to number three within literally six months. I had all kinds of media calling me, other intelligence agencies calling me, asking, what did you do? What did you do, Miss Hubbard? And it worked like a charm. It was amazing. I had a, an Atlanta recruiter, who said, Miss Hubbard, she he called and says, Miss Hubbard, they want me to actually do a cafe mixer at one of the social Atlantic cafe spots in Atlanta. And I said, OK, what's the problem? Well, I can't go into a, an institute, a scenery like that and, and, and set up a booth. And I said, I said, I said, Paul, they said mixer. That means take your FBI literature and be able to mix with the crowd and talk about the FBI. The students were going to do it with you. he says, this is never going to work. But guess what? He called me right off and said, oh my gosh, this was amazing. I had so many people wanted to sign up for the FBI. So all it took was people like you going into the community and feeling welcome. And we had FBI billboards. We started putting FBI... I put the FBI commercials out there. I was one of the first... I was the first intelligence agency shortly after 9-11 that I actually... Created a commercial with uh, a Sikh uh, employee who wore the turban, and it aired during Super Bowl. And one of my employees came in and said. I don't think that commercial worked. I said, why? The name was Donna. I said, why, Donna? She says, my family told me, one of my family members said they would never want to work with someone who looked like that. I said, then that's exactly why it works. Because if people don't want to work with someone who looks like that, we don't want them anyway. I said, so it worked perfectly. And she says, that's amazing. You're right. And she said, you know, she felt so hurt that her family member had said that. And she was a white lady, very nice But I said, that was that family member That's not you, Donna I said oh, don't, feel, don't feel sorry, it's good, it's all good
2: Listen, you told her that I want I want them all to feel responsible For their neighbors, for their mothers For their father. yeah, yeah Cry, Donna, that's right I want each of y'all to feel responsible For the next one Because if they feel like it ain't me That's the attitude they're going to take Well, I, yeah, nah, nah, it's you too Look just like you, Donna. Oh, you are so right. That's, that's the God in you. That's that's one. That's part of God. See, I'm a different. I'm a different part of God. That's 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 the. You see, God a Gemini, and he and you, you got one side, and I got the other. That's and the other side is, is the one that tells Donna, no, yeah, you should feel bad, Donna. You associate with people like that, Donna. That's close to you. That's right. That's your kinfolk. <laughs> that's your kinfolk. You're responsible for the look. Look, they judge us on our kids, you know, and they judge our association. I mean, you know. So yeah, yeah, Donna. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know you, <laughs> oh no, what about you. Oh, that's can't come to the. You can't come to the next <laughs> gathering. Yeah. <laughs> Keep your potato salad with the raisins and the pineapple chunks. Keep all that at home. Don't come to the next.
3: Oh, boy. Now, that's a different skin. You're the first person I heard that said that. (laughs)
2: <laughs> I, mean, I mean, look, man, we got the whole, but we all accountable for each other is, the, is what I'm trying to say. Exactly. We, we all should be accountable for each other. I mean, think about that, right? What kind of world would this be if we left a lot of that selfishness alone and really was really trying to look out for one another? And and not just trusting either, like questioning things and and, and doing our own research and, and also having a, 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 a an intelligent dialogue or diatribe about something as opposed to running with, you know, because today when it comes to news and information, I feel like so, everybody is so quick to be first that they forget about being right.
3: Exactly. Exactly, Carl. You're right. And it wasn't just the phase one test. But guess where else we had adverse impact, Carl, on that polygraph? Now, my mm-hmm. Polygraph cannot be used in court, so my thing in that was why. Are we using this polygraph as a mandatory out? If someone right. fails the polygraph, that should be an area that should be looked into, not an automatic, you know, thank you, goodbye. And there were many
2: Yeah, because people are nervous. I mean, there's all kind of reasons that you fa- you can fail a polygraph and they know that. Exactly. Which is why sometimes it's not admissible in court. It's like it's not a exactly. tried and true situation.
3: And there were many, many African Americans who have called me afterwards, called our staff in tears and they would say, you know, Miss Hadley, I felt like I was a criminal. I felt like I was being treated like a criminal and I have to give it to one of our former assistant directors. Her name is Jennifer. Uh, Jennifer Love and she she was over the, uh, the uh, security division also at that time. And she did a study on the polygraph and she did find adverse impact. And she did find polygraphers who were, who were purposely failing African-Americans. And she, she got, got them and she removed them. You know, during my era, I must say that I worked with some of the best. And And, you know, they were, our hearts were committed. We were in, we were in human resources. We were in security. All of those, you know, we were were the gatekeepers, basically. What are those problem areas, you know, that are preventing us, our individual people of color, from cancer? We would we would resolve, we would research, dissect, and I had a white statistician, gentleman who worked in the EO office who said this test, you know, the first that first test is totally biased against African Americans and it should be removed immediately. And even with some people, some people Carl will not test well. But you put them in the middle of the street, middle of the street, in the middle of the hood, they can do amazing things. And that's one mm-hmm. I like one thing I like about some of the other agencies is that they did not use the polygraph as the sole knockout. They did not use a written exam as a sole knockout. They used also they had a written exam, then they had a role play exercise. If you went in that role play exercise and you wowed them or you saw whatever, whatever, and you failed the polygraph or you failed the writing or something, you potentially continue to move forward through that
2: process. And I think that that's where, yeah, because it's like, to me, it, it, would, it would almost seem like as if it is geared towards what you're saying, if you just base it on one thing. Right. Right. Because it's, I mean, why else would you have a, you know, six tests if you're only going to base it on one aspect of the test and it, then it would seem biased. Exactly. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful and I'm sure a lot of other people are thankful and glad that you you know, As you said, you were put there that you were there to create these programs and to make these changes to allow it to be more equal and fair. Was there ever a case or anything that you ever, you know, that you were working on that stands out in your mind that may have changed you in some way, or you know, just basically something that stuck with you?
3: I would say the most profound thing that happened to me during my tenure, honestly, and the most rewarding, Carl, was diversifying the FBI because that was my that was my divine assignment, stayed in that lane, and I remember the Sink, there were two sisters, we used to call them the Singh sisters, and they were Sikh. and their grandmother brought them to me at one of the events we went to, and I remember she asked us just to hire them, and giving her approval, and they were hired, and they stuck with the FBI, them, and many of the other interns, as well as other people, other events that we would go to. We were all over the place, not just the schools. We were going to the African-American and Minority Associations professional networks. We did just so much going into the grassroots, doing grassroots recruiting, going into neighborhoods where people would only have seen, for example, when I went to University of Maryland, UMBC, and worked with Dr. Hakka Howard Browski, bless his heart, he's retiring this year at UMBC. And the students were so grateful that we came. They, they had never seen black FBI agents. And it was just unveiling the unveiling, the demystifying the FBI, and that's one of the things we asked the students at Morehouse when we first started recruiting there, have you ever seen a black FBI agent? And they said, no, never. And so during that Hmm. tenure, it was just so, every time we were able to see their shining faces, get them on board, having them in their positions, whether they wanted to be intelligence analysts, FBI agents, management analysts, whatever. Carpenters, painters, you name a city, everything that a city needs to run, FBI needed it. Plumbers, so it's not just FBI agents alone. I want to also thank during those years the people behind the FBI agents were also critical to the operational running uh, up there yeah. and mm-hmm. that's what made me so excited was to sit back and just watch you know cases being solved because of for example I'll give you an example of uh, there was an agent that I had hired who actually interviewed Saddam Hussein he was the one that actually went in and had to debrief him and get close to him and you know he tells his story wherever he goes and his mother even made, made him cookies because he missed the uh, cookies and hearing that Story is so heart wrenching because he was able to get to him because he knew the culture, he was able to obtain his trust because he already knew the cult, he was Arabic himself. That right there should be the epitome of somebody says, Why does the FBI need to be the left of society? We serve, we can't just send girl into you know southeast DC, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
2: So, like I said, you know, and, and but it all starts with the vetting and the recruitment purposes. That process. Let me ask you another question. Switching gears. You said you worked with um, Mueller. What, so, what are your thoughts on him and and that whole situation?
3: Oh, my gosh, I love Director Mueller. He was awesome. Let me tell you, whenever he would have, he used to have these roundtable discussions where he would bring in people in minority communities, a group of pastors, for example, Hispanic leaders, not only academia. Whenever he would have these meetings with minority associations, he would always call me to the meeting to tell them what we're doing in recruiting their particular within their particular community. There was this one time he called me in and he says, uh, remember his uh, assistant director of public affairs, uh, when the boss wants you to sit beside him. I had a a female boss at that time who says, no, she sits right here beside me. She's not to move.' And she told her again, no. The boss. But like the mother wants Marilyn Hubbard to sit beside him. And she goes, no, stay here. So he walks in, he starts talking and he says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where's Gwendolyn Hubbard? Wait, I need you right here. Come up here. <laughs> and and, and that a, You can imagine the look on, on her face and she was a, a Caucasian female, but she turned beet red. And he did that every time. And he said, he called me afterwards. He says, Miss Hubbard, if anybody, anybody gives you a hard time and tells you you can't do something, to recruit more minorities and women in the FBI, you have my personal line. This is my personal line. You call me. That's who Director Muller was.
2: Well, I don't need to ask any more questions about that. So, uh, about him, I don't need to ask any more questions about him. And that's been that's kind of been the um, that's been the same. Every time I ask about people who have worked with him, oh. they, they've all had the same thing to say. You know, with regards to his which what speaks to his character. Now, what about uh, what about Comey?
3: Uh, Comey, i uh, worked with him only for a short while when I was onboarding a lot of his, like I say it was only a year, and he was very personable, caring, a man of faith. I told him my testimony. So when I onboarded a lot of his, like his general counsel, the people that he hired, and we expedited them through the process to make sure that he had his whole floor set up and structured the way he wanted it. I actually went and told the Director Comey, my divine assignment had changed. i never forget, I ran into a stranger call downtown Washington, D.C. I'd gone up to some employees in what they called the Woody's building. And when I came out, there was a man in a, in a brown black jacket with brown pants, and he, I was walking towards the FBI. My back was like at the, um, at the White House. And someone says, hey, Gwen, I had to turn literally all the way around and walk back. And I said, yes, sir. I said, I'm sorry. Do you work for me, sir? I didn't see you upstairs what's your name he said i've been sent to bless you and i told the director told me this i said what do you mean and that night before i had prayed to god again to please send me just one more sign one more sign that I was to leave the fbi and move to Ashka. he said ma. Mm. Oh god has not seen a heart like yours in millennia millen- 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 i don't even know what the word was and i said excuse me sir i said sir seriously do you work upstairs how do you know my name he said i'm an angel i said and at this time i Call my secretary down from the corner He's down here because I a witness to this. I'm not even believing in myself.
2: He's a Facebook stalker. He's seeing you on Facebook. He was watching you for a minute. He's seeing you on Facebook and LinkedIn. And LinkedIn was waiting for you to come out. I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that one. Hey! <laughs> you know me? I'm named <laughs>
3: Girl, I wasn't even on Facebook alone at that, 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 that time. We couldn't be. He says you will leave your job and you will go to Africa. Stop worrying about where you're gonna live, where you're gonna drive. Stop worrying about your family. This is God is sending you for this divine assignment because he's sending you to continents. I said oh. He said, what, the, what God has in store for you to do over there and for the continents is way more than what you can imagine you doing for the life. And I told the director Comey this, and he was like, he, was, he said, "Miss Hubbard, he says, I can offer you bonuses to stay, other positions to stay, but I recognize your faith is strong and I can't compete with God. And I said, no, sir. No amount. It wasn't no amount of money. I walked away far from from everything into this new global career. I left it all." Holmes. okay all right dave tell all right walk no
1: <laughs>
2: on, on, on away it's cool it was but it was that time. but what do you think what are you, I mean, what are, you, what are your thoughts on the whole deal with Comey and the emails With that cost you know, Hillary the election? And was that necessary or do you think it was more political? Like, what was that about?
3: I mean, personally, if it had been me, I would never have released any information like that to the public. That's one thing about Director Mueller. In my opinion, you never saw Director Mueller on TV. Comey was very personable. He wanted to be that guy that you know, put out information to people to be you know, almost the face. You know, of the FBI I would leave that to the Public Affairs Division. No one you see the FBI directly comes out and has something to report with results, and the case is over. But if you remember if you remember during Director Mueller's years, how many often did you see him on national T V in comparison to Director Coleman? He was a good guy, a very good personable guy. And I know he thought he was doing the right thing by sharing information. But sometimes
2: you can share information too soon and it would be to the detriment of you. But that's what I'm saying. What do you think the motive behind it was? Like what do you think it was meant?
3: I don't think there was a motive. I honestly think he was doing the right thing by sharing information that was found. That's what I think. And unfortunately, it it went, it went sour. You know, it should not mm. have been, in my opinion, it should not have been, I'm not, I wasn't, I told you, I, I knew they weren't going to make me FBI director, but, <laughs> you know, that, that was done uh, too soon, in my opinion, that should not have been shared so fast. But I'm behind it, I just think he, he was that type of guy, that he liked to share information. He liked to talk to people. He liked to be personal. He wrote his own emails. He didn't have people to write his, his, uh, his emails. You know, he was the one that was sending out, uh, uh, emails to all FBI workforce. He was just that personable. <laughs> Whereas other directors would, well, you handle that. Public affairs division, you handle this. This is what I want the
2: message to be. Yeah, it's 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 one of those, but it's one of those things where it's like, you know, if you say one thing about his character or from what your experience is with him, and then if that becomes the actual narrative from other people who work with him, it makes you wonder then what was forcing the hand or what, why did, you know, I'm, I'm not asking you to get into it. I'm just posing a question and saying, you know, make you're like you
3: know right why really and, and I'm sure he was getting a lot of pressure from reporters and wanted to know so I I honestly think he thought he was doing the right thing that he thought he was doing the right thing I know I'm sure he was getting a lot of pressure from people reporters alike and from Capitol Hill and from the White House and all over
2: okay all right we're gonna wrap this up soon uh you know let me just say this you know um you, you you've definitely been one of the more interesting people I've talked to. Um, on this show um, and your walk and your journey is definitely different from anyone else's that I've talked to, but I think um, you're not done yet. Like you said, but thankful for you that you're doing the, the the good work. Keep up doing the good work. You know that you're doing. Um, it's a blessing that you are where you are. You are always right where you. My, my philosophy is you're always where you're supposed to be at all times. You know whether you're late for something or you know like there's there's reason in everything. And you found your purpose and you're walking in it. And that's an amazing thing. That's a that's a super super amazing thing. I ask all my guests this question. What was your favorite law enforcement or cop show growing up?
3: <laughs> law and Order. <laughs>
2: Man, I tell you, when I hear that sound, I drop everything. I will get stuck. You could you could miss whole. You could miss a whole day watching the, re, uh, the marathons of Law and Order. oh exactly. Law and Order
3: was
2: it? <laughs> Ooh wee! That show was. That show was. That show is about as as addictive as crack in the eighties.
3: Wasn't it? Exactly.
2: Man. Man, that show is crazy.
1: It was. Um, it was oh.
2: If there was someone from your past, uh, childhood or whatever, and you could have arrested them, who would it be and why? Oh,
3: hard. I know you
2: you he or she know who they are, right?
3: Well, that's right. They know who they are. <laughs> we'll leave
2: it. I got you. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I thank you for sharing your time with us, Miss Gwendolyn Hubbard. Uh, I really appreciate you um sharing your story with us. And, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna be obviously contacting you and bringing you back and talking to you about some things that we're gonna do to continue that fight and continue that journey that we're all getting involved in, uh, you know, off off the off the air with regards to that. Okay. So
3: and I welcome uh Mauritania, Carl, you know, we need people like yourself over here in this country, they need everything. So I welcome you.
2: We'll put something together. We'll put something together and get get me over there. You know, I can uh, I can make them laugh and teach them something at the same time.
3: That's what they need. Amen. You know, that's why we love you, Carl Payne.
2: Thank you so much. I know it's late over there, so I'm not going to keep you Uh, here in the lesson. Everybody, please. Thank you for Miss Gwendolyn Hubbard.
0: Thank you. Black Arm of the Law is hosted by Carl Payne. Produced by Ken Johnson, Bart Phillips, and Carl Payne. Assistant producer, Lauren Turner. Consulting producers, FBI Special Agent Retired Don Taylor and FBI Special Agent Retired George Graves. Edited by Rick Chill. Theme music by Jeff Redd, courtesy of Soul Real Records executive producers ken johnson and bart phillips find black arm of the law on apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast black arm of the law is a mean old lion media production pulling up to mickey d's just for drinks